my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of John this morning. We are still in our series, See, Believe, Live, working verse by verse through the Gospel of John. Today we're beginning the chapter, um, falls in your Bible, chapter 8. Beginning of chapter 8, actually we have to pick up one verse from chapter 7. And then we're going to read down to chapter 8, verse 11. Uh, It's going to be a different kind of a sermon this morning than we typically do. We mostly work through books of the Bible, verse by verse. Uh, Generally, I'll read a portion of the Scripture, and then I'll do my best to explain it and find the application to our lives. Um, Today, though, we're going to read John chapter 8, and we're going to um, explain and exegete another passage. Uh, You'll understand why in a moment. So, John chapter 8. Uh, Actually, John chapter 7, verse 53, uh, I believe that's page 893 of the Pew Bible. Let me read it, and then uh, I'll pray. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him. That they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up. And said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Lord and Father, every single week you remind me of my need of you. I don't come into this pulpit carrying words. 
that will change anyone, that will save anyone. I seek only to speak your word because I know those words will change us and save us. So Father, should there be anything in me that would hinder the clarity of your word and the truth of your word from being spoken and heard this morning, forgive me of it, remove it from me, and send your spirit now to use me, your servant, to speak the truth of your word into the ears of your people. May it penetrate our hearts, soften what is hard, open what is closed, and bring life so that we leave this place Worshipping the God who saved us and fleeing sexual immorality. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' praise. Amen. The greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century happened by accident. It was a young Bedouin goat herder who was searching for a lost goat in the rocky cliffs outside the West Bank in Israel happened upon a cave, and he threw a rock in the cave, and he heard a crashing of a clay pot. And upon further investigation, he found many pots, and inside those pots there were scrolls, known today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Almost 900 biblical manuscripts were discovered in those caves Some of the oldest and most intact biblical manuscripts in existence were found in those caves. And many of those manuscripts, most of them, add to and corroborate other biblical manuscripts that we have. Of course, you know, this is not the only biblical manuscripts that we have. Today, there are over 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament in existence. As far as ancient texts go, you should know that is an embarrassment of riches. For example, in terms of historical credibility, nothing else stands close. In Plato's work, we have seven manuscripts. They were written 1,200 years after he was dead. Of Aristotle, we have 49 manuscripts written 1,400 years after he croaked. And of Homer's Iliad, we have an astounding 643 manuscripts, and they were written 500 years after Homer wrote it. Of the 6,000 New Testament manuscripts, the oldest of which was written somewhere around 50 years after the original. Of those 6,000, that's just counting the Greek manuscripts. If you add in the other languages, there's over 24,000 biblical manuscripts. If you were to stack them all, it would be over a mile high. On top of that, even if all of the biblical manuscripts were suddenly lost in a fire or something, we would still be able to piece together every single Greek word of the New Testament using the tens of thousands of commentaries that are in print today. All of that to say this. You can have absolute certainty 
that the Bible in your lap or on your device is the actual scripture inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, written by the apostles and translated into English. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring it up because of the two little brackets that appear in your Bible around this passage. There's a notation that will tell you that this story, one of the most famous of all the stories in the Gospels, this woman caught in adultery and the Lord with her, is not in the oldest manuscripts. It doesn't appear in any manuscript until about the 5th century. None of the early church fathers mentioned it in their writings, and the structure of the Greek language is very different than the rest of John's gospel. So, the missing manuscripts, the Greek structure, the absence of commentary on this passage has led almost every textual scholar to conclude this passage is not Joannine, meaning um, it, it was not written by the apostle John. So what do we do? We're working through John's gospel verse by verse. We come to a section we're not 100% sure John wrote. What do we do? We skip it. Or we preach it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this story of Jesus' forgiveness of this woman and her sexual sin. And we're going to unpack that principle from another text in the New Testament And sort of use that to launch us back into John, lay it over John, and and, and have those principles apply to us and to that passage. So, with that said, take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that's page 955, if you're in a pew Bible. We're going to read... From verse 12 down to verse 20. And we're going to draw out three points, which we'll then lay over John 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. You're welcome to follow along above my head as well. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up. By his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual 
immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The main point of this passage, therefore the main point of my sermon on this passage, is in your worship guide, Jesus bought your body to bring glory to God. Therefore, flee sexual immorality. I have three points, which as I said, will then carry back into John chapter 8. The application of this text is really one thing, simple, flee sexual immorality. So, it would probably help us at this point to give a definition of sexual morality. If we're to flee from sexual immorality, we should know what is right if we are to flee what is wrong. So, a couple of things to always remember every time you read in the Bible something about sexual sin, and that is this. Sex is good. God created it. It was God's idea. It was designed by God for his glory, for human flourishing. We have to remember this every time we talk about sex. Sex was created by God. It is good. It is designed by God for his glory and for human flourishing. You understand that when God created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden and they were naked. And of course, it doesn't take long for two naked people to figure out the mechanics of what might happen. And so God didn't walk in on this couple at one point and just be like, ah, what's going on? It was God's idea and he created it. Did not catch him by surprise. God made them male and female and created the reproductive system to work as it does. It was meant sex to be a blessing upon marriage, to do three things, promote intimacy, protect from temptation to sin, and to produce more humans. So because God created sex, and because he designed it for his glory and for human flourishing, God created sex to work within certain parameters. And those parameters are really very simple. One man, one woman, in the covenant of marriage. Those are his parameters. Outside of that, it is wrong. Sex between a husband and a wife is good sex. Any any kind of sex outside of those parameters is sinful, does not bring glory to God, and it does not lead to human flourishing. I explain it like this to my kids. Sex is a little bit like fire. Fire in a fireplace is good. Heats the home. It's cozy. Fire outside of a fireplace will burn the, the whole thing to the ground. Fire in the wrong hands at the wrong time will burn everything to the ground. So... Like fire, sex is a good thing when it's handled properly in the right place. If it's handled improperly, it is sinful and it is destructive. So, 
Now you have a little bit of a definition about what sexual morality is, one man, one woman in marriage. We can begin to understand what the apostle means when he uses the phrase sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is uh, one word in the Greek. It's sort of like a junk drawer. It's a big category and lots of sins fall underneath that category. Specifically, Paul's referring to sexual acti- activity outside of the covenant of marriage. But out, under the, underneath the heading of sexual immorality are also things like fornication, which is sex before marriage, adultery, sex with someone who is not your spouse when you are married, homosexual behavior falls under that, orgies, lust, any sexual sin outside of those parameters. It all falls underneath that sort of one man, one woman marriage definition. It's a very general word. It, it is meant to apply very broadly. That's on purpose. Because y'all freaks. And you're going to find some exception if it's not general. Okay? So, that's what he means. Let's get started. Verse 12 through 14. All things are lawful for me. That's in quotations. Maybe it was a sort of a saying back then. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The Corinthian church, which occasioned the Corinthian letter, was jacked up. It was It had went sideways in all sorts of ways. Sexual immorality was sort of in the air that the Corinthians breathed. People were going to prostitutes. There's a dude sleeping with his stepmom. And everybody else in the church is like, Christian freedom, brother. Well done. Live the life. It was a mess. It was pretty much Christians gone wild. And the Apostle Paul writes to them a letter. And then he follows up his letter with what he calls... A painful visit. Now, sometimes God will cause pastors to make painful visits to his people. Because like I said, y'all freaks. The Corinthians were freaks. And they had a saying. It appears. All things are lawful for me. Maybe it's sort of like a motto. Like, a, like the modern day YOLO. All things are lawful. You only live once. Live, up, live it up. Food is meant for the stomach. Stomach is, is meant for food. God gave me this sexual desire. I was born this way. We've heard that all before. Or maybe we thought it ourselves. It's just biology. It's just sex. Why is marriage important? You wouldn't, why would you wait until after marriage? You wouldn't, you wouldn't buy a car without test driving it first. You ever heard that one? Well, here's Paul's response. Sex is good. Sexual appetite is good, but it makes a terrible God. Not all things are helpful, and I will not be dominated by anything. Do you catch it? There are some kinds of sex which are not helpful sex. There are some kinds of sex which will enslave. 
unless we control our sexual appetites. Our sexual appetites will control us. It's not just sex. It's more than that. And you are more than your appetites. And happiness is more than sexual fulfillment. By the way, our culture is, uh, does a, a fine job of communicating the message that you'll not be a happy person, a fulfilled person, unless you're sexually fulfilled. They're brilliant at that message. But you have to remember, as a Christian, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who is celibate. So the most joyful, the most fulfilled, the most happy person who's ever walked this earth never had sex. It's a, it's, it's a false idea. But this is the message we hear. The world wants to take sex and make it strictly biological. And it teaches us to express ourselves sexually, express your, your sexual desires, enjoy yourself. But the Bible understands that we are more than physical bodies. We're more than just chemical reactions. You're more than just your physical appetites and your animalistic instincts. God will destroy both. Paul doesn't mean that your body's appetites are not important. He means that they're not ultimately important. God raised the Lord Jesus, and he'll raise your body too. And so what the Bible does is actually gives the, Bible, the body more importance than the world does. And then you have religious people on the other side. You have the world on this side talking about sex. And then you have religious people on the other side talking about sex, saying that it is dirty. It is dangerous. And they teach us to repress sexual desires. But the Bible understands that sex is good at the right place at the right time. Sexual appetites are not bad. They're given as a blessing by God for marriage, sort of like a wedding gift to promote intimacy, to protect from sexual temptation, and to produce humans. The gospel teaches us that sex is meant to reflect a self-sacrificial giving like the unwavering faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ to his people. Sexually immoral sex is selfish sex. It is sex that uses others to feed his own appetite. And sex outside of faithful covenant of marriage takes and it doesn't give. It abuses and doesn't protect. It's fire outside the fireplace and it will burn the house down sex is good but makes a terrible god all things are lawful but i will not be enslaved by anything don't be naive cornerstone sexual appetites can quickly become like a god in your life. They can quickly enslave you. If not checked against the Holy Scripture, your sexual appetite will drive you to do things that go against your own conscience. 
You will be forced to make painful sacrifices on the altar of sexual fulfillment. How many marriages, how many families have bled to death on the altar of sexual fulfillment? How many churches have lost their gospel witness because a leader sacrificed the church on the altar of sexual fulfillment? How many women have been abused by the hands, by the words of sexually immoral men? Right now, it seems that Hollywood is sort of decrying the offering to the God that they have created themselves. And it's heartbreaking. And in terms of sexual sin, friend, women and children are always the victims. They always pay the highest price. So sexual appetite is a good thing. But it makes a terrible God, a very destructive God, a very expensive God. And that brings me to my next point. The body that God gave you doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Because the Bible says the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You you may have heard this before, certainly have, living in our day. It's my body, I'll do what I want. It's such an old, tired argument. It didn't work in the first century. It doesn't work in the 20th century. It certainly doesn't work in the 21st century. You didn't create yourself. God created you. And if you are a Christian, your body was bought with a price. At the same time, your soul was bought with a price. It doesn't belong to you. Paul says sexual sin is different than other kinds of sin. A sexually immoral person sins against their own body. God made sex for marriage. When a husband and a wife are joined in sexual intimacy, they become one flesh. And then Paul quotes from Genesis 2. 
Therefore, father shall, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall, the two shall become one flesh. Part of the destructiveness of sexual sin is that it mars this one flesh union. It disfigures the spiritual union that a believer has with Christ. When God saves a person, he fills their life with his Holy Spirit. And Christians in Christ, they, they are together. They have this wonderful, mysterious union. And that Christ is in you and you are in Christ. The two are together. And so when a person sins against the Lord in a sexually immoral way, it's as if he carries Christ with him, with her, into the bedroom. Shall I take my body, which is one with Christ, and make it one with a prostitute? Paul says. It's wrong, therefore, to assume you have authority over your own body. You, you, you don't have authority over your own body, over your own physical appetites, over your own sexual appetites. Your body, verse 19 says, is a temple for the Holy Spirit. When God saved you, it's as if the Holy Spirit commandeered your body. Sort of like an imminent domain sort of thing. He took over. It's his. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You're mine. God made you his when he saved you from his wrath. We have to remember the price that God paid for our bodies. It's no small price. God spilled the lifeblood of his own son to buy your body. There's no other, no higher price than that. And sexual sin devalues God's purchase. It devalues your body. It devalues your life. Sexual sin lowers the value of human life. How many times do we have to see the statistics for sexual slavery to know what sexual sin does to the value of human life? It's not just sex. Sexual sin lowers the value of human life, but the gospel adds value to human life. Your body is his, and you were made for more than a full stomach and sexual fulfillment. You were made for something greater than yourself. And the the apostle Paul tells us what that is in the last part of verse 20, which is my third point. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body.
God's reason in giving you a body and saving you from his wrath is this, to demonstrate the glory of his grace toward hell-deserving sinners. Your body was meant for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Since the first sermon I preached here in March of 2015, I've endeavored to convince you that the glory of God is the greatest good in the universe It is the greatest good in your life. That God has connected his glory from your life to your joy in this life. And the more that God is glorified by your life, the more that you will be enjoying your life. And they work on a scale, friend. When when God's glory is diminished through sin, your joy is diminished. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Eating, drinking, sex, it is all meant for God's glory. It's possible that you've never considered the implications of glorifying God with your body. Maybe you've never really thought about the mundanities of life as as bringing God glory. How do I eat to the glory of God? How do I drink to the glory of God? How do I have sex to the glory of God? How do you pay bills to the glory of God? How do you show up to work on time to the glory of God? How do you do your schoolwork to the glory of God? This is what it means to be a Christian. Jane prayed this this morning. One eye on this world, one eye on the next. One eye on what I'm doing here. My life lived faithfully before the Lord here and one eye towards God's glory in the next. 2 Corinthians 5.9 So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. When you read the Bible, you find what it looks like for your life to bring God glory. And then you just do that full time. That's what it means to be a Christian. Have an orientation towards honoring the Lord Jesus with your time, with your money, with your affections, with your appetites. All things to the glory of God. Sexual faithfulness does not bring glory to God. Sexual faithfulness done for His sake brings glory to God. Paying bills does not glorify God. Unbelievers pay their bills. Paying the bills for Jesus' sake, that brings glory to God. Because without faith, 
it is impossible to please him. And that's the difference between a believer and a non-believer. They do the same things in many ways. It's just that one does it for God's sake and gets a reward. And the other does it in sin. That which is not of faith is sin. Here's the point. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, the ultimate price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And you do this in a number of ways, but specifically by fleeing from sexual immorality. So with that, we conclude where we began in John chapter 8 with the woman caught in adultery. Whether this story was written by the Apostle John or not, I think we can all relate to it in some way. The Pharisees, the scribes, they bring a woman before Jesus, and they're, they're doing this to test Jesus. She's being accused of adultery. Apparently, she'd been caught in the act. And the test before Jesus is this. The law of Moses condemns a person to death for committing adultery. But here's the problem. The Jews were forbidden by the Roman government from exacting capital punishment on their people. You see what a quandary this would have been for Jesus. Either he condemns the law of Moses, therefore proving himself to be a false prophet, or condones stoning and therefore gets arrested by the Romans. It was a very clever trick, or so they thought. But do you notice the issues with their case? Any good lawyer would have noticed this straight away. I don't know what you know about how adultery works, but it takes two people, not one. Where's the dude? She was caught in the act. Where's he? He's going to take a woman and put her in front of a bunch of people with rocks. Where's he? It takes two. So there's an issue. So what does Jesus do? Does he break the law of Moses? Does he break the law of the Romans? He stoops down. He writes in the dirt. The Pharisees, the scribes, they're demanding a verdict. So he stands up. He who is without sin among you, be the first to cast his stone. Then he goes back to the ground and starts writing again. And then from the oldest person with stones in their hands to the youngest person with stones in their hands, they all leave until there's only two people left. The sexually immoral woman and Jesus Christ. And again, Jesus stands up. This time he addresses himself to the woman. He says, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And then he responds, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
The story has something for all of us. Because everyone in this room has used their bodies in some way sinfully. Some of us sexually, all of us in some way. We've misused our appetites. We have forsaken God's design for sex. And we've sought to do things our own way. And we've been caught in the act. And around us are religious people who accuse us. Rocks in hand, waiting a verdict. They just await the gavel. And the verdict from the king of heaven. And all of us are guilty like the woman. And all of us deserve to be stoned as she did. But like with the woman between us and our accusers is Jesus Christ. And the God of heaven has his verdict in his hand and he stoops down from heaven into the dirt. Jesus becomes a man, comes down to our level and his verdict is let him who is without sin cast the first stone. There were many people around that woman at that moment, but only one of them was without sin. His hands are full of dirt, not stones. The accuser's mouths are silenced, and the sinless one stands up. Has no one condemned you? Neither do I. In reality, the woman's sin would be condemned. She would not be stoned to death for her sexual sin, but the judge of heaven would cast a stone. And it would not land on her. And it would not land on you. It would not even land on her accusers. The stone from God's own hand would land on God's own son and he would effectively be stoned to death in order to say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And this is where the story hits home. Jesus bore the wrath for your sexual sin. He took the flurry of accusations against you on himself. Those of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ, I want you to understand something. There's no more stones to throw. Every stone of accusation was leveled against God's own son. There's none left. And like the woman, you stand uncondemned. So you might be thinking, how could God possibly forgive me 
of my sexual sins? I want you to hear this. Hear the Lord. Your accusers are gone. Their mouths have been shut. And there's no more stones to throw. This woman that Jesus forgave, she probably still smelled like the man's bedroom she just came from. And Jesus will not condemn her. He gets in the dirt with her. He gets in the dirt with you. And he bought her body. That same body that had been misused by men, which she had misused with men. That same tainted, broken, gross, sin-stained body, he bought it with his blood. Your broken, tainted, sin-stained body, which you have misused, which has been misused, he bought it. You are not your own. Your body belongs to God to give him glory. Last thing I'll say. The next time you the next time you're tempted toward sexual sin remember this story. Remember 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. The Lord laid down his life and suffered the punishment of God for your sin to buy your body. It's not yours. The Holy Spirit lives in you. It's not yours. And the Lord of glory deserves to get what he paid for. A pure, spotless body. The Lord Jesus himself takes sin very seriously. And we should too. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I think if the Lord had been saying that in our day, he would have said it like this. If the internet causes you to sin, shut it off. but I use the internet for my business. You think somebody in the first century agrarian society didn't use their right hand for work? The Lord takes sexual sin very seriously because of the damage it does for you, to you, the body he bought, for the damage it does to others when you misuse them. So glorify God in your body. Flee sexual temptation. Fellow sinner, fellow sexual sinner, you are uncondemned. Flee sexual temptation. Let's pray.
Lord, I cannot possibly begin to imagine why you bought me. What do I bring to the table except my sin? What do I bring to the table except my idolatry? I cannot possibly imagine why you did what you did. But I pray, Lord, that you would begin now, even as we sing, to remind us of the price that you paid for our bodies. So that the very next time we are tempted towards sexual immorality, we will remember we are not our own. This body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And for anyone, Lord, that is in here, I pray by the Holy Spirit, you would open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel. If they have never confessed their sexual sins before the Lord, I pray that they do it now as we sing. If they have never really believed that God would forgive them for that sexual sin, I pray that they confess it and know it today. He has. And for those who are in this room who are struggling every single day to flee sexual immorality, send your Holy Spirit and bring the gospel to bear on that issue in their hearts so that they can have freedom. Do this for Jesus' sake so that these your people can stand before you today and all through eternity as a pure and spotless land, pure and spotless bride made clean by the Lamb of God. In Jesus' name, amen.